G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance-orientated, hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at reedgoosens.com. And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. I sat back and I realized, one, property management is a game of process, right? So if you can build the right processes and put them in place, um, the rest of the game should be easy. Easy in the sense of you streamline decision-making. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to have that difficult tenant and find those kind of in-between decisions that you have to make, but if you have the right processes, it makes those types of decisions a lot easier. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show.
Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jimmy Murray. Jimmy is a co-owner and co-founder of Lion Property Management near Boston, New York. Uh, Jimmy has created this property management company all the way from scratch, and he came out of really a need to go and create a property management company because he found that it was so difficult to find good property management. So I'm really excited to have him on the show today because it's a program and it's a show that we're going to talk a lot about creating something from nothing. And really in property management, no one really puts their hand up to say, I want to go start a property management company. So we're going to dive a lot into that, but enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Jimmy. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. And uh, I was just kind of laughing to myself as you talked about, nobody really wants to raise their hand and dive in. And uh, I did that. I, as we discussed prior to dive, jumping on, uh, probably wouldn't do it again, but uh, <laughs> excited to share my experience of how I awesome, accomplished man. it. Well, we, I want to keep that for the nuts and bolts section of, of the show. Let's uh, let's 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 really lay lay the journey. So let's rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Yeah, first ever dollar as a kid, uh, I made cutting lawns. So yep. my aunt offered uh, for me to cut her grass, and my mom would drive me down. I make twenty bucks a week, and that was like gold as a kid. And uh, a couple of the neighbors saw me cutting the lawn. And uh, I was able to use my aunt's lawnmower and go and cut other lawns as well. And I think I get up to like $50 a week, which uh, back maybe like 20 years ago was pretty big to a 10-year-old kid. So sure, um, totally huge believer in hard work. And I, it, it really starts there. Awesome. No, I think it, 100%. And there's a lot of people who come on this show, particularly real estate investors, the male real estate investors, uh, a lot of them cut lawns as kids because it's just an easy way to like, you, you get a whippersnipper, you get a, you get a lawnmower and you get out there and just start having at it, right? And getting paid for what you're doing. Absolutely. So, um, but, but, but walk me through the journey. Like, did you go to school? Did you go to uni? Did you, you know, how did you come or stumble across this world of real estate investment? And, and was there anything in your upbringing that helped you make that leap out of a traditional nine to five job? Yeah. So my dad was a carpenter. And he is retired now, um, but he actually owned his own company at one point before he had dove back and went to work for the union. So he was working with real estate developers, building houses. And I always bugged him. I want to be out on the job site, helping him, you know, scrap out houses. And uh, he told me, hey, listen, pick up a book, read, learn how to do these things so you're not, you know, humping sheetrock for four years of your life like I did. Um and he kind of kicked himself because when I bought my first multifamily, he was there right alongside me every single weekend showing me how to swing a hammer then when he could have taught me as a kid. Um, mm. So I, I think that's really where it started. Um, fast forward, graduating high school, I ended up going to community college for a couple of years to save money. Um, so I think that's a key aspect to understand because a lot of the greatest real estate investors are frugal in a sense. I wouldn't say cheap, um, but really value oriented. So that's the beginning of my college experience. Transferred out to, uh, if there's any football fans listening in, the Ohio State University, huge football school. Had a ton of fun out there. And the interesting part about the classes that I took out there is I made fun of my friends who took real estate classes. I said, hey, that stuff's really easy. Why don't you come learn about the stock market? We'll be able to make a lot more money. When my end goal was to make it to Wall Street, make a ton of money, and then become a passive real estate investor. <laughs> um, it didn't work out exactly like that, um, but end up graduating, didn't make it to Wall Street, came home to Rhode Island and um, ended up working for a financial firm, spent a year there, realized it wasn't my thing, and then ended up buying my first multifamily when I was 23 years old. Wow. Wow. That's, 
a lot, a lot to pack into a couple of years. But, but I like what you said before about the community college aspect of it. It is a cheap way to get your credentials up or just get a, uh, you know, a bit of a stepping stone into a bigger university because I know America is so, uh, there's so much debt, right? We talk yeah. about student housing, student debt. And my, my wife who's American also did exactly the same thing. Went to community college before for a couple of years and then went off to UCSB in Santa Barbara. Perfect. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, but the, the value orientated, I think you hit the nail on the head there where you've got to be a little bit more frugal with your money um, and understanding the value of a dollar to not just go and piss it up against the wall, right? Yeah. <laughs> which is what people, which is what you can do really easily at those universities. Um, but tell me about, you know, that transition coming out of uni, going to Rhode Island and then being, owning a, a multifamily at 23, like clearly you had a job in there. Was, was, was working for someone else something that you butted heads with and just didn't align with your values or, or, or your inner desire to go and be more and do more? Yeah, absolutely. So the big thing, so my first year, I'm working for an investment firm, probably the largest privately held mutual fund company in the world. Um, don't want to drop the name, don't want to catch a lawsuit, right? Um, <laughs> but I was a financial analyst, which sounds really sexy, but I'm looking at Proformas, making sure that the investment team doesn't spend too much money on their TE as they go and pick stocks, right? As they research these companies. Um, during that first year, I was actually trading my Roth IRA and generated a 44% return on my Roth IRA, which I was actually held with the company, right? So I kept telling my manager, I'm like, bring me down to the investment floor. I know how to pick stocks. And he's like, no, listen, you're going to go to a Target MBA school, go and get your CFA. And it's like all these criteria in order to get me down to the investment floor and pick stocks. And I don't know that. Yeah, I could have spent the time and did that, but that's like not my MO. I'm like, listen, I, <laughs> I've proven that I have a track record to know how to do this. And he's like, listen, you did that with like 10 to $15,000 in your IRA account. These guys are doing it with millions of dollars. I'm like, well, if I did it with that much and had success, I can definitely continue to build on that. And that just wasn't the structure. What were you doing with that ten to fifteen thousand dollars? Like what Roth, Roth IRA investing? What you were investing in your own company's stocks? It, is that right? it was stocks. Yeah. So I can remember, um, like this was at the at the point where um, Verizon and AT and T had the iPhone, but Sprint did not. And typically, mm -hmm. I'm a or most often I'm a value investor, but I recognized that Sprint at that point was a growth stock because it was naturally inclined to gen or to increase in stock price when they offered the iPhone, which happened about three months later. And um, I was able to double up on my investment there, but it was, it was like reading into the market and, and looking at those distribution channels. But I'm, I'm really truly a value investor where I would build a discounted cash flow model, very similar to how we uh, price multifamily assets. And I think that's why it was such a natural transition to get into multifamily real estate. And, and talk to me about how you learned to spot, those anomalies like uh the fact that sprint didn't have iphones like no one's just thinking like that because the average person out there who who has a job did you learn a bit about at school and trying to find out though what those criteria that in the due diligence of understanding a stock like what is missing from the other mark other competitive you know competition in the market and then thus you could see that was the value to be added and you knew that was going to come because technology is consistently evolving that this company was either going to go bust or you know, get on with the program and, and start offering iPhones? Right. So I think there's really three factors. One is some factor has to do with schooling, right? To be able to read a 10K and kind of see the writing on the wall to see what's coming down the pipe. The second part is kind of like innate ability of just kind of having the idea. I had a ton of time my first year. Like I worked probably 40, 50 hours a week. I was in my, I call it my cage at the cube farm. Um, 
but I probably did like 20 hours worth of work. So I did a ton of research, read a ton of articles. And that's what kind of led me, led me down the process of kind of figuring out. And then I would say the last piece is always luck, right? You always get to sprinkle in a little bit of luck to be good. Um, right. So I would say those are the three components that led me to, to make that decision. Um, to understanding a PNL research and a little bit of luck is what the three, the three things is what you just described for the listeners. Absolutely. Yep. Awesome. So tell, and back to the, the, the thread of the story here, the, the, the inner desire to do more and be more. So when you quit that company, that big, you know, not to be named uh, international <laughs> investment company, when he was telling you, you got to go get an MBA, you got to get a CFA, blah, 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 blah. You had a, a dichotomy at that point where you thought, okay, well, I either, either do that or I go down a different path. What made you go down that different path? Yeah, so I studied six months for the CFA and they sent me a nice letter after the test and they said, hey, congrats, you scored in the top 10% of the failures. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you're welcome to take the test again. And I said, uh, I just spent you know $5,000, spent six months studying for this test. Um, I had no social life at that point. And I said, do I spend another 5,000 on study materials and, and testing fees and the whole gamut? Or do I take that money to invest in a multifamily? So during this whole process, I came across biggerpockets.com. And I think this is a similar story for a lot of investors. And I realized how easy it was. You know, mm -hmm. I learned about house hacking, owner-occupied financing, and house hacking wasn't as prevalent of a, of a term as it is now. But I was stuck at that kind of crossroads where do I spend the money taking the next CFA test again? And, you know, do I have the potential to fail that and for it to go nowhere? Or do I take that same $5,000 and do I invest in multifamily real estate? And uh, I think based on my presence on the show, we know where I, where I, I leaned on that decision. So. Yeah. And so was the multifamily something that you was, you were seeing that in just what the company was doing. So you understood the value of multifamily, and I guess what time? What time frame are we talking about? Is this, is this five years ago? Is this two thousand and ten? Is this two thousand and eight? Like when, when were you doing all of this work? Yep. So this is two thousand and ten. So honestly, okay, two thousand. I didn't realize how strong, or I won't say strong, but how good of a real estate market that is. Um, mm. When I bought my first four family, I bought it for one hundred and forty thousand dollars. And to put that into perspective, um, it's in a B neighborhood, and the rent roll. At acquisition was about eleven hundred, but six months after acquisition, I had at thirty six hundred. So eleven hundred total. Eleven hundred gross. Yep, at acquisition, yep. and then six months later, I had it up to thirty six hundred. Wow! So, so like a bit like three hundred bucks a unit per month. Uh, per month. Yeah, right? yeah, it was really strong. Yeah. Um, but again, that that's kind of like that. You got to be lucky to be good sometimes, right? So I was yeah, good enough to yeah. do the pro forma analysis up front, realized that it was a deal, but I didn't realize how good of a market that was for real estate investors. A lot of people were scared at that time and a lot of money was still on the sidelines. Hmm. You know, it's very interesting because I, I, I was not even in the country at that stage. I was still in Australia. And um, it sounds like you got a really good good start. Good start. So, how did you find this? And are you were still working full time whilst you finding we found this deal. I was. Yep. So, okay. Um, I launched my property management company as a side hustle later on, years down the road. But I worked for that company for six years after I had that kind of uh, after I made that decision at the end of year one. Um, because, as as many listeners know, as they're uh, tuned into this podcast, you need some form of income in order to qualify mm -hmm. for most loans, particularly if it's an owner-occupied loan. Now, if you're going after those larger commercial deals, you probably don't need it because it's going to be financing provided based on cash flow and any types of reserves that you have. Um, 
but up front you need that you need that w2 job in order to put you in that position um at the end of the day um i was always focused on financial freedom and i recognized that multifamily real estate was the quickest path to get me there i think it right, right. as i'm sitting there and I'm analyzing stocks i'm realizing like yeah there are dividend stocks that provide some form of cash flow and you have an opportunity for capital appreciation but on the on in terms of uh, return on risk, real estate's the best return on risk that I've been able to find in terms of not only that cash flow on a monthly basis, but also in terms of capital appreciation throughout the long run. Right, right. And so now, what <laughs> we're going to pivot a little bit again. So you've, you've bought your first property, you still need the W 2 income. Are you growing the portfolio at that stage? Are you trying to buy more of it? Are you seeing how well you've done in the three or six months that you earned the first one? Like eleven hundred bucks to thirty six hundred dollars a month? You've just tripled your your gross income. Like, is there just the the light bulb's gone off and said, "I need to get more of these things"? That's exactly right. <laughs> and uh, I didn't have a ton of money at that point, so uh, there was one major electrical project that I didn't budget for that uh, sent me in the whole seven thousand dollars that I didn't have. So I was kind of fighting an uphill battle. Um, when I was stabilizing that building. So I ended up getting into wholesaling. I put out a bunch of bandit signs, um, was spending about $500 a month on yellow letters. And uh, at that point, I was still like a very extreme introvert. I didn't like to talk to people. Sales calls were difficult. I didn't know how to close deals. Um, it took me four months to close my first deal, but I did make $15,000 in a wholesale deal. I continued to market. And that's when I figured out that I was really good at talking to tired landlords. And that's the segue into the property management business a couple of years thereafter. Well, you know, I don't want to jump the gun here, but you know, what what was the the wholesaling was being done as you were still working full time? So you're trying to <laughs> yeah trying to trying to work full time and you're trying to wholesale at the same time as well. Absolutely to, to, to get that to get the money to then buy more multifamily, right? That's it. That's the name of the game. Yep. So uh, I'll I'll throw in a little bit of a sidebar here. Um, one of my buddies buddies calls it the chunker method. I don't know if that's an official real estate term, but that's what we call it. Um, chunker, C-H-U-N-K-A. Uh, yeah, E-R. Sorry, my Rhode Island accent's coming in there. So it's chunker, not chunka, <laughs> but sorry for the accent. Um, so I like to call it, uh, it's like golfers, right? You drive for show, but you putt for dough. Putting is where you really make the, the money, right? And that's right. flipping houses and owning buy and hold multifamilies. The chunker method of you flip the house, you get that chunk of capital, you roll it into a multifamily property. So at that stage of the game for me, it was how do I get those chunky wholesale deals uh, with the fat assignment fees in order to roll into the next multifamily? Mm-hmm. And so were you successful at doing that? No. Keeping the, the really, portfolio going? <laughs> no, I really okay. wasn't. Um, okay. I bought a second multifamily a couple of years thereafter and then just really started to focus on the property management company. I was not a successful wholesaler. Um, in 2020, our company has now gotten back into wholesaling as we, we've gained more experience in the field and gained more access to capital. We found it's a lot easier to close wholesale deals um, when we have capital behind us. Interesting, interesting. No, I think it's, 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 so you're saying overall that you were not good at wholesaling. The real estate investment side is still being evolving today, but you saw a niche in the market that you wanted to get involved in. Talk to me a little bit about property management because not every single person in the green room before we press record here 
as I said, no one's putting their hand up to, or I think in the intro, no one's putting their hand up to do a property management company because everyone hates the, or the tenant termites and toilets, whatever it's called. So I like that so one. <laughs> why did you want to, why did you want to get involved in probably the stinkiest part of the, of the business? Yeah. So I sat back and I realized one property management is a game of process, right? So if you can build the right processes and put them in place, um, the rest of the game should be easy, easy in the sense of you streamline decision-making. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to have that difficult tenant and find those kind of in-between decisions that you have to make. But if you have the right processes, it makes those types of decisions a lot easier. The other thing that I realized after I bought my first couple multifamilies is that in your average market, the net income that an investor targets to make per door is very similar to the property management fee, at least in my market. So most investors mm-hmm. were aiming to make $150 to $200 per door. And clear cash flow a month, that is. Yeah, clearing cash flow a month. That's after all your capex, um, uh, debt service, and any other bills that you're going to have to pay. Um, as a property manager, if I'm charging 10% and the average rent's $1,000 a month, if I can clear $100 per door in my management fee, if I'm able to scale that management business more quickly, I'm able to get out get out of the nine to five that much more quickly as well. Right, right. No, I, th- I think that's exactly correct. And so talk to me about how you went about, how you went about the first forte. And where, I should always take one step back, where on the timeline have you quit the job by this stage? Yeah, so I quit the job two years after buying my second multifamily. So probably five years in. Would be would have would have been five years in, yes. So 2015, 2016, we're talking about. Yeah, 2016. Yep. 2016, awesome. And yep. I bet you that day was a pretty pretty bittersweet when you walked into your boss's office. Oh yeah. Hey, <laughs> I, hey mate, remember that MBA you told me to go get? Yeah, I'm gonna go start my own company. I've got a great <laughs> I've got a great story about this. So uh, I'm huge on visualization, right? Yep. And for two years, I walked around and I thought about the exit email that I would send to my closest friends. So <laughs> on my last day. I can remember I'd been working on this email for a couple of months because I saw the writing on the wall and I was going to leave. And I can remember sending the email, closing the laptop, bringing it to my boss's office, and then my phone started to explode. So I wrote my exit email um, to the lyrics of Juicy by Notorious B.I.G. and sent it to 200 <laughs> of my closest friends. And uh, it's kind of like urban legend at that company now. Um, even <laughs> Even a few years later, uh, this past Christmas, I was walking through Home Depot, bumped into a former manager, and he said, holy cow, people still talk about the email. I heard someone talking about it last week. And uh, That's awesome. I wanted to like lay the, lay the tracks of how I was able to develop my mindset and become an entrepreneur in order to provide my family the financial stability for me to leave and, mm-hmm. and be able to live the life that I wanted to lead as well. So I broke it down kind of step by step with pieces of the lyrics from the song of things that I did and hopefully it helps other folks achieve the dreams that they want to achieve you as wanna, well. You want to, you want to give us a little snippet of uh, what you write? Yeah. So uh, one piece of it, I talked about, um, so Notorious B.I.G. calls out his mentors in the song, right? And I wrote my mentor. So I talked about how I didn't know how to sell. And I talked about that related to wholesaling. So from Grant Cardone, I learned how to educate and close. And that's been a, a deadly asset to me in the, in the business that I'm in today. Um, I listened to a ton of Eric Thomas, right? Um, mm-hmm. One of the big tidbits from Eric Thomas that he talks about is that it it takes 21 years to be to be 21 years old, right? So there's a process and things are going to happen to you at the right time, but you have to trust the process and appreciate the journey. Um, I also talked about Gary Vaynerchuk, right? Learning the power of social media. 
we leveraged social media at uh, Lion Property Management, my company, last year. Um, I hosted a series of videos called The Lion Chronicles, which I pushed out every Friday. And my partner was like, you know, I don't believe in those videos. I don't know if they're going to work. And then he started going to the showings. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're Chris at Lion. We watched The Lion Chronicles. And he, he's like, hey, Jimmy, you know who these people are? I'm like, I have no idea who they are. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, it worked, right? So I started in that email. I wrote that I had followed. It was uh, five mentors in total. And these are things that I picked up from them. And I shared with folks that it doesn't just have to be a mentor that you meet with in person or talk to on the phone. It could be these, these social media personalities that you find a piece of what they do. And then you can take that home and apply it to some of the things that you're doing as well. Yep. Completely agree. Completely agree. I think that's the most important thing that people can get started in this world is finding a mentor. I do think there's some element of inspiration versus a mentor, right? Like you read a book, it inspires you to do more, but you need that mentor to help you handhold a little bit. Um, what, what I was just on a podcast earlier talking to someone about how when I first came to the United States, the, ac- the, the, the amount of information when I moved here in 2012, the thousands of dollars I would have had to have paid for a guru in Australia to mentor me to be a real estate investor was readily available at the local REARS or picking up a book. Um, there's a book I still remember called uh, Flip, F-L-I-P. It's like a green little book. Yep. Um, it, it was. It talked a little all about how to you know, find the best neighborhood to invest in and how to bird dog. And it was like, I was like, wow, that's that was what they were trying to sell me for seven or eight grand in Australia. You <laughs> yeah. know, like it was all in a book. And and so it's it, it, so it's back to the the mentor. It's like you need the bit of the both. You need that inspiration, like the book and the podcast and the quote on Instagram, to then go out and find a, a mentor that you know, hopefully you you then grind with. So um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, so 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 now. Talk to me about the property management business. You've been forced into this hand. You've seen, tell me what you saw in the marketplace that you thought, I'm going to go do this. What, what, was, the in, what was the moment that you thought, this is where, I, this is the new journey? Yeah, there's really only one game in town. And a lot of investors really didn't like them. There were a couple other small shops and there were also a lot of older property managers, kind of smaller shops, like 100 to 200 doors. Um, personally, what I found in our local market is, uh, I would say the owners of property management companies who are like 45 or older, they're a little bit tired. They don't hustle as hard. And uh, I think that's where we bring kind of the younger skill to the table. Not to say we're not experienced, Mm -hmm. but um, like we talked about, um, property managers get tired. It's a grind, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we brought that young blood. But I think, you know, our biggest approach as a property management company is how do we bring that value? And that's what I talked to a lot of investors up front about. So, more recently, we've been more diligent in our screening of investors that we work with on the front end. Um, my advice to investors listening to this podcast is that if you pick up the phone and the, the first question that you ask a property manager that you're interviewing is about price, you shouldn't be investing in real estate. When you mm-hmm. get on the phone with a property manager, you want to be talking to them about investment philosophy and their approach in, in parts of the process and how they would handle it. So like, what is a typical turnover process? Like, how does that start? What does the move in and move out condition statement look like? How would you approach this tenant scenario? You want to understand that manager's philosophy because those philosophies are what is going to generate your return on your investment. And those are the conversations that we have with investors up front. No, I'm not saying that I'm the most expensive in my market and I'm definitely not the cheapest, but you find that sweet spot and you, you aim to provide value. And that's where we've had success in our local market. And what type of, what size of assets are you managing in your local market? Yeah, so um, in total, we manage just under 600 units currently. 
Mm -hmm. um, but the typical assets that we manage are anywhere from a three to six unit building. So um, in the industrial revolution, there was a, a river that cut through most of Rhode Island. It was called the Blackstone River. And they built a bunch of mills along the side of the Blackstone River in order to provide electricity to the mill buildings. Close to these mill buildings, they would buy the they would build these three to six unit tenement houses. And that's where all the mill workers, mill workers would go home at night. They want to keep them close right. to the factories. Um, and that's worked well on a multi multifamily investment play on two levels in the local market. One being those multifamily properties still exist. And then those mill buildings have now been converted into kind of loft or luxury style apartments that look really cool mm -hmm. on the inside and they're wide open and kind of tall ceilings. Um, so we really have, I would say a good inventory of, of multifamily property. And so when, when you're starting this, this process of, of starting a property management company, what was the first step that you needed to do? To, 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 did you hire someone? Did you hire an assistant? Did you, what systems did you build out in order to say, I've got a property management company? Yeah, so we went to the attorney's office, we launched an LLC and we started banging on doors. Um, <laughs> yep. It really kind of bootstrapping, right? So I can remember our first client. Um, so I have one partner in the business. His name is Chris. Um, the first client was a friend of Chris's girlfriend. He had a three family in Providence. It was not in a great neighborhood. Um, it was on Robin Street in Providence. Um, and uh, I can remember the first tenant we had to boot out of that building. And uh, so we had to use force. We didn't have to take him to eviction court, but we had a strong arm, arm him. He wasn't the greatest human being in the world. But uh, we ended up doing that first turnover ourselves. And the tenant on the second floor alerted of us like a week before eviction court that he had moved out. Um, she thought like 10 days ago. And I can remember in the middle of August, we opened up that refrigerator full of food. And that is a smell <laughs> that I will never, never forget, right? Um, so in the beginning, it was knocking on those doors, opening up that referral network. And then uh, we did all the turnovers ourselves and all the maintenance ourselves. Interesting. So, and... and how does this like the smaller property management teams work? Because obviously in my portfolio, I have a leasing center and within each, I've got 100 and 250 units and there's a leasing center on the property and we have four people who stand on the inside and we have three people who, who are on the outside and they're just to that one property. Yep. How do you, where's all your team based in order to provide that level of service? So the, the leasing office, so to speak, um, where do people go in order to apply for um, a lease at, at, at a property that you manage? Yep, so we do it all online. So we have a really streamlined process um, with the, so not to get too software oriented because I'm a, I'm a huge uh, technology nerd. Um, we love Appfolio. Uh, that's a pretty prevalent operating platform for property managers. And then we bolt on a system called Tenant Turner. So Tenant Turner streamlines and automates um, to allow our showing agents to do what they're most effective at and that's closing great prospects. So Tenant Turner is gonna streamline the communication upfront. So if a prospective tenant goes out to Zillow and they send through um, something saying they're interested in the property, they're going to get autoresponders saying, hey, here's a link to the showing agent's calendar. You can propose three times or accept one of the times that they're already showing the property. So that gets the tenant out there. Um, but that tenant turner software helps us out tremendously. So then our showing agents can get out to the showing um, without taking a ton of phone calls or t answering text messages or emails. I'm not saying that they don't do that, but they answer less because we have this automated system. And this is really, is that, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, does that mean that you have less warm bodies that need to be a tenant shower, so to speak? Absolutely, absolutely. Because they're not as busy picking up the phones. 
Right, um, right, right. But where that really helps us out is, or where the technology really helps us out to start it on the front end, that gets them used to using technology all the way throughout the process. So even they'll receive an automated text message 24, eight and two hours before the showing to make sure they're gonna show up. Mm -hmm. After the showing within an hour, they're gonna receive a link to the application and receive a link to the application every two days until they say, hey, stop sending me notifications. That allows us to attract more applications. They apply online, they have to provide photocopies of their ID and two recent pay stubs. They get used to the technology there, they sign a lease online, and then that gets them into the online payment system. Now where this is really optimal to owners, because now they're used to using technology, is that 80% of our maintenance requests come directly from the tenants. So I think from an investment perspective, as an owner, if you go into your portal and you see that your property manager is, is inputting a majority of the maintenance requests, that would cause me to ask a you know, ask some questions to say, hey, how come mm. you guys are inputting all of these? How come none of these are coming from the tenants? Um, I think getting tenants used to technology in the property management process is going to be optimal to your success as a property manager. I'm interrupting this episode to remind you guys about the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. If you want to take your investing career to the next level and surround yourself with the best in the business, then apply today. Spots are filling up fast. I'm only taking a handful of people for the next round, so get your application by emailing me at info info at reedgoosens.com. Remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Now, back into the show. What, so you've got the, the tenant screening and, and the, the inbound leads from, from new tenants or new prospective tenants online, yep. right? Um, talk to me about the back end and, and attracting more owners. You talk about the investment criteria or the, the criteria to screen investors in order for them to manage your assets. So how are you how are you capturing those types of leads to in order to grow from 600 units to, you know, 1600 units? This is going to sound crazy. So the first 100 units, um, we use Thumbtack. <laughs> so no one huh. no one else in our our area was using Thumbtack, and Thumbtack was very different when we started using it 5 years ago. It probably cost us anywhere from 2 to 7 dollars to pay for a lead. Now, probably like wow. one out of every 8 were actually serious owners. Um, but we had roughly a 50% close rate. So our goal as leads came through Thumbtack was to get out to the property. And we knew that we knew enough about the property where we could show that we had experience to have that owner gain some confidence in us. But for the first four years of our journey, we were taking on anything that we could. And, and then we grew to a certain point and we said, hey, you know, um, we have some really great clients, but we have some not so great clients as well. And we recognized that we were spending too much time on the clients that like really weren't buying into the process. And that was causing us um, or, or straining the relationships that we had with good clients where we couldn't spend as much time on them to help them to continue to grow their portfolios. Right. And what was the biggest underlying thing that you recognized when you had to fire a, uh, fire a client? Like you, it wasn't the ideal client that you wanted to work with. Uh, crazy micromanagers. So right. um, what I noticed is that on a, on a smaller scale, right? So say you own a three family and you move out and you are the onsite property manager. Everybody knows that you're the owner. You bring in me as the property manager, our company as the property manager. Um, if I have to come in and drop the hammer and then tenants know that they can reach out to you and then you're going to offer them a better deal, I am 100% ineffective. I'm not going to mm -hmm. be able to be as effective. Um, tenants like to play that mom versus dad game. 
of, well, hey, the property manager said this, but I think that you would say this, and then they try to gain <laughs> that leverage. Um, so I can't remember we had, I'm trying to think of the name of the street, but we had this one owner and like the tenant was crazy. She sent us some notice saying that, um, you know, the house numbers had fallen off the outside of the building at like 5 PM. And then by 5:25 PM, she sends us a picture, um, saying that she had replaced the numbers on the outside of the building. And she was deducting that from her rent. <laughs> and the owner's like, why couldn't you do that faster than that? I'm like, legitimately, it was 25 minutes. Like, we could have sent an email to have you approve it. But by the way, um, we're both in meetings. And, um, you know, this isn't like the typical process. It's just right. some tenants are a little silly. Um, so it's all about managing that process. And, and in terms of the, the screening process on the front end to make sure that you're getting the right tenants in there, do you do a three times X on the rental income? Uh, do you do obviously background checks? Um, are you in certain neighborhoods and not in others? Yeah. So, Right now, we manage everything from Class A assets to Class D assets, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is a lot of fun in itself. Um, yep. All of our showing agents, they have a one-pager, right? So one, to abide by fair housing guidelines, but two, to have that same standard criteria, right? So every tenant has to apply and pay an application fee, and a large portion of that is going to be used to cover a credit eviction or background check. That is really, really important. Um, you're going to have two recent pay, pay stubs, as well as a photocopy of their ID. I would recommend that you reach out to verify that they are still actively employed. Make sure that the pay stubs are recent and not from a couple months ago. You'd be surprised at how frequently that happens. And then really critical step is two uh, landlord references. Mm. And you don't really want the current one because that current one, maybe they might want to get rid of that, that tenant that's coming across. You want two landlords to go. So not the current one, but the one prior to that. And I'm going to throw out a golden nugget here. I would say have a standard set of questions. So we have six questions that we ask, but the last question is always the best one. You have no idea how many tenants put their friends' telephone numbers on the application and, and coach their friends on how to give them a positive tenant reference. <laughs> the last question that we ask all landlord references is what was the color of the house that they rented from you? I can't tell you how many phone calls I had folks hang up on me and then call me back five minutes later after they Googled the color of the house. It is absolutely <laughs> incredible. Um, so I would say all you DIY landlords out there listening, that is going to be like one of the greatest questions that you can ask to see if it really is a valid landlord reference. Got it. Got it. Okay. The, okay yeah. Because the landlord would know the color of the bloody house if it was a true landlord. I get yep. it. I get it. Yep. Cool. Cool. So what's been the biggest struggle for you creating this business from scratch and particularly a property management business? Yeah. So the biggest thing is trying to focus on building with the right owners. Right. And that's, that's been a big shift that, that we've made over the course of the last year. Like not every client is a good client and not uh, every property manager is a good fit for every investor. So I think it works on both sides. It's a relationship. And I think one of the biggest struggles is that I coach owners that we are your cash flow consultant. We are we are partners in generating cash flow and getting you the return on investment that you're looking for. If you're an investor and you have this tilt that you always talk down to your property manager, it's probably not the right fit. You got to recognize mm. that you both play on the same level and you both have some level of buy-in into the into the game of generating that return. Right. I think the hardest thing for me, um, just giving a little bit of feedback on on managing larger assets, is. 
is you make money when you buy, you lose money through bad property management Absolutely. and bad property managers. Yeah. And, and, and in particular on our assets where we do have a leasing agent and an onsite manager, um, they can dictate your performance of the the, the gate uh, the, the the asset out of the gate if it's a rent, you know if it's a large renovation or value add rehab um, now a little bit different on your scale because you don't have a warm body you only got three to six units you know it's not you don't have a leasing center right um, but it's still the same idea right you still have to make sure that you are on top of your, your shit so to speak so yeah. um, I remember my first property in upstate New York uh, it was a triplex. And I remember now thinking back to it, it was only thirty eight thousand bucks, but that's awesome. the gross the, the the gross income of that of that place was like twelve or thirteen hundred bucks a month, and it was Section Eight housing, right? And they were getting the, I think the it was eight percent a month or seven percent a month, so they were earning like seventy bucks a month. The property management company, do you think they were really? And I had one of them, you know. Do you think they were really making gravy on seventy bucks a month? And right. hence, were they putting the best quality tenant in my building on a little building and the answer was no and we end up having a drive-by shooting and it was a whole disaster and like so there's yeah. also a, there's another side of the flip the other side of the coin when you are dealing with small property managers you've got to make sure that your alignment you, you do align because it sometimes can be t- difficult to justify spending that money but you have to spend the money right on the, the seven eight ten percent um but the, but looking back I, I should have done it differently and bought five or six of those little $38,000 properties so I could you know, um, spread the risk out of a lot more property, uh, across a lot more properties. So when someone did move out or we had a drive-by shooting or one of the, you know, one of the units was not, was not, was not um, uh, occupied for six months, you know, like it, it affects cash flow. Right. So any, any comment about that, you know, given my, given my experience back in the day? Yeah. So I, I think that all of your comments ring true and, and I'm right with you on, on all the comments. The biggest thing is making sure that the pricing structure aligns so it's mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. So sometimes property managers, within their management fee, they will charge a management fee even if the unit is vacant. And point yep. blank, I think that's BS. If, if that property is not generating cash flow in terms of rent collected, that property manager should not be earning a management fee. And that's <laughs> step one of how you align interests. Step two of how we align interests at my company is um, our tenant placement fee, we guarantee the tenant for one year. Now, mm. if something happens to that tenant during the first year, we don't cover the eviction costs or anything like that because sometimes stuff just happens. However, if something happens to that tenant during the first year, we place another one for free. And I think that's one of the ways that we've been able to differentiate, differentiate ourselves in our current or in our local market in order to gain some ground in terms of, hey, listen, this is how much we believe in our screening process in order to align our interests to place great long-term tenants. Right, right. Another, yeah. I was gonna say one other part, and this may ring true to what you do, um, pay attention to releasing fees, Mm -hmm. right? So I don't charge any releasing fees, and that's how I I prove to our investors that we're in this for the long-term. I tell all of our investors, if you have Tenants who pay every month and there's no maintenance, that's really ideal, right? Because you earn your rate of return. You only pay us a management fee, but we earn our residual or income as well. And then everything else is is really good and hopefully smooth. Um, but those releasing fees can really start to eat into your return. If every time uh, a manager renews a lease with a tenant, if you get to pay 100, 125, 150 bucks, some, some markets that might be higher, um, that can dramatically reduce your return. 
Yep, I completely agree. I completely agree. Mate, what would be one thing if you could go back and change your process uh, or, or your journey into this property management world that you'd go back and change? Yeah, I would buy all the buildings myself. That's where I have the most fun. <laughs> um, are you buying? Are you, are you seeing deal flow come from from, from managing assets? Uh, so not from managing assets. And I think that might be based on the stage of the cycle. Um, we do have a fair clip of investors like in their 60s that are starting to age, but most of them have children that are in, interested in real estate. So hopefully we maintain mm -hmm. the management relationship. Um, we're starting to see a lot of our deal flow from wholesalers uh, because mm -hmm. they know that we're... Um, well-backed in terms of capital. Um, so they know that we'll be able to take down the deals from that perspective. Awesome. What's the uh, what's the next uh, 12 to 24 months got in store for, for Lion Property Management? Yeah, we're really focused on building our current relationships. So finding those off-market deals and funneling, funneling them back into the portfolios of the investors that we really enjoy working with. Awesome, awesome stuff. And any, anything on the personal side? So... Uh, on the personal side, I love to take down a couple more deals myself. Um, we found some good opportunities recently in flipping multifamilies on our local market, um, just because prices <laughs> prices have gotten a little bit crazy um, yep. in the Rhode Island across the country, man. <laughs> yeah, so in the Rhode Island market, like even depending on neighborhood demographic, you want to pick up units between fifty thousand to seventy five thousand a unit, and those mm -hmm. seventy five thousand a unit neighborhoods are trading for like two hundred to two hundred twenty five a unit. <laughs> So it's just very, very inflated. So even where we're picking up properties on the wholesale front um, are typically where we wouldn't want to hold the property, but because we know where the ARV is, that helps us get into those flip opportunities. Do you, one last question for you. Do you think because of the inflation of rent over the last, call it 10 years since the recession, that has been a reflection of, house, of the multifamily price per door? I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a part of it. Um, I don't think it's the entire equation. I think that investors are much more optimistic and they're much more capital is more readily available. I saw an article mm -hmm. yesterday that uh, um, I think the federal government is now releasing the debt to income or uh, they're not going to press on the debt to income ratio as much. And that's very dangerous um, on mm. some of these owner occupied loans. Um, so I think you may see some of that predatory lending come back in, which is a great opportunity for us as investors, uh, but may, maybe not for your average consumer. Um, but not to get too long-winded, I do think that maybe at least in my local market, 30% of, of the price per unit increase is going to be related to that increase in rents. Right. And, and what are you, what's your crystal ball saying for slowdown recession? Are we in a recession right now? Like, what are you, what are you thinking? Yeah, I don't think we are. Um, I've been saying 12 to 18 months for about a year now. So uh, <laughs> I think it's still over a year out. I think there's still a lot of, um, you know, based on, I'm trying to think of the word. I'm, I'm thinking of the word weak, but I would say soft economic policy, which makes interest mm -hmm. rates artificially low. I think that's going to continue to prop up the market. I'm not an economist, but that's just based on what I'm seeing. Right. Cool stuff, man. Well, look, at the end of every show, we like to dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Absolutely. Let's rock. Mate, what is the number one habit you practice to keep on, on your daily number one habit to, to practice to keep on track towards your goals? Reading 20 pages. Um, Reading 20 pages. Why, why specifically 20 pages? So I used to have a goal to read one book a month and it never worked mm -hmm. out. Um, huge believer in uh, the fact that uh, discipline delivers happiness, right? Because if you're disciplined mm -hmm. to execute on something every single day, 
those small daily improvements are going to lead to massive gains. So I found out if I set the goal to read 20 pages every day, that actually allowed me to read, it typically allows me to read about 24 books a year. Um, and in most conversations, it's crazy that it didn't come up in this conversation. Um, I would say like every five to 10 minutes, I'm like, oh, by the way, I read this in this book. And, and this is something that I think <laughs> might relate back. Uh, so I'm a very avid reader. Um, and that allows me to- And you're physically reading, right? You're not listening, reading. That's it. That's a huge difference. So I love listening yeah. to podcasts, but I have to physically read books. I have a kill shelf in my bedroom. I have to mm -hmm. see like all the books that I read. And sometimes I'll circle back and pick up a book um, just to go back it's, and- it it's so sorry to interrupt you. It's so important to keep reading, like their physical act of reading, yep. and 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 with, for for your eyes, it helps with your vocabulary, helps with your speaking, it helps with so much stuff, cognitive, brain function, all the good stuff. Um, so yeah, no, I think the physical act of reading is really really important. And sometimes people are like, yeah, I read, uh, yeah, I read three books a month. And it's like, no, you listen to three books a month. Yeah, it's, it's a big difference. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm a I'm a book nerd all day, so I hear that loud and clear. Uh, second question, who's been the most influential person in your career to date? You're going to love this one, Conor McGregor. So this is ah, crazy. Really? This is crazy. So I recognize he's, he's infamous. Um, even like last night, like I put in 45 minutes on the treadmill last night. And uh, as I'm on the treadmill, I watch Conor McGregor videos and how he talks about mindset and his approach. And I think what a lot of people have to recognize is like the kind of villain that he plays, that's, that's what allows him to make those large paychecks. But if you have to mm. go, actually go back and listen to the behind the scenes interviews of how he developed um, uh, his ability to um, develop a vision for the life that he wanted to achieve. So he was introduced to the secret um, by Dee Devlin, who's now his wife. And uh, that dramatically changed his life. And I will tell you that when I picked up the secret and read it and started practicing um, the lessons shared in the secret, that's when my entrepreneurial life dramatically changed as well. Who who wrote who wrote the secret? That's written by Rhonda Byrne, and it's B Y R N E. B Y R N E. Okay, I have to pick that one up. Okay, haven't haven't heard that one. Um, awesome stuff. No, Conor McGregor. He, he came out with a what a forty second win the other night, yeah. <laughs> where he, he smacked him out. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was interesting. On just on a health kick, when he lost to that skinny guy, I can't remember. I think it was from Brazil. And the guy was on um, a vegan diet and he came out and said, and he was giving him all this shit about being, you know, a vegetarian and yep. all this sort of stuff and came out and smacked him. Yeah. And he realized, yeah, meat eating was, uh, it, it was actually slowing him down. It's uh, particularly when, when he's trying to fight and prepare for fighting. That's really you interesting know. that you say that. Um, I have a buddy. He is, uh, so it's Thursday as we record this, he's fighting in two days uh, for the golden gloves in New England. So he's, he's a boxing mm -hmm. guy, but he's 39 years mm -hmm. old. You're only allowed to fight for the golden gloves until you're 40. Um, but he was able to drop 40 pounds in three months to, to fight for the golden wow. gloves from a plant-based diet. So I think we'll yep. start to see that become more and more prevalent. hundred percent. No, and it makes you feel so much lighter, but, um, we, we get a little bit off topic, but, but good on you. Conor McGregor is your most influential person, uh, in your business, you'd, you'd have an influential tool. And when I say tool, it could be a physical tool, like a phone or a person or a book or a journal, um, but there's also it could be a, a, an app. What's the most influential tool that you use on a daily basis in your business? Yeah, so I could take that a number of different directions. But in terms of uh, gaining street cred, social media is huge. To be able mm. to share some of the stories and things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis, that allows us um, to attract much more street cred when we go out there to try to take down a deal or to try to attract a new client or try to attract a realtor that can provide us referrals. Got it.
Got it. So you, do you use anything in terms of that? Like, so is it, is it is like you have a camera crew with you when you go and do the street cred or like, how do you build that? I love that. I bought a hundred dollar gimbal. And uh, as I look to the right here, I have what my team calls a makeup camera. So if no one, if I don't <laughs> want to hold the gimbal and walk around or if no one's around to kind of hold the camera, I put it on the makeup camera and uh, <laughs> it, like less than one minute videos, just talking about something that we did or something really important that we feel an investor should know. Um, mm -hmm. And that's been a pivotal tool in our business. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Um, in one sentence, what's been the biggest failure in your career to date? What did you learn from that failure? Yeah. Transitioning to propertyware as a property management platform. That was terrible. Um, Transitioning from what? Sorry. Repeat that for the listeners again. Propertyware. So propertyware property was a where. platform that we used. So there's a big three uh -huh. in terms of property management platforms. And it's the operating system that contains everything um, mm -hmm. from collecting rent payments, ownership, financials, uh, documents, everything. Um, that almost killed our company last year. We thought that it was going to be a huge pickup, um, not only to our clients, um, to our internal team and our, our tenants uh, that we service. Um, it just fell short of expectations. So we're excited to be back on the platform that we're on. It's called that Folio. Um, mm -hmm. But that was um, the single largest thing that almost killed our business. Do you guys use Yardi? We use Yardi across all our big uh, yep. commercial real estate. So Yardi, Yardi is much well, much well known on the, the larger commercial real estate front. On the smaller, um, privately managed multifamilies mm -hmm. and single families, Appfolio is going to be the major player. But Yardi is very awesome. well regarded in the space that you play in. Right. Yeah. No. It's 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 an awesome tool that I use all the time. Um, last question, big fella, is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. They want to get the what, the, the Lion Property Manager Daily Chronicles or Weekly Chronicles. Where do they go? Yeah. So you can hunt me down on Facebook. Uh, my name on Facebook is Jimmy Murray. Last name is M-U-R-R-A-Y. I also put a ton of daily content on my Instagram story. And my Instagram handle is the notorious CFK. CFK, which stands for what? Cashflow King. Ah, <laughs> love it. Love it, big fella. Well, mate, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show today. I just want to reflect some of the things that I learned from you. I think the biggest thing is that you've you had the nous to go and roll up the sleeves and get involved in a dirty part of the business which isn't sexy right no. property management isn't sexy it's not the glory it's you've seen probably some absolute horrendous horrendous stuff <laughs> in your time yeah. that i could only, i would only be envious uh and I, I know my property managers see it and i'm not i'm not involved but um it's, it's kudos to you to, to go and see and double down on something that can still create you financial freedom it's still creating a business you know your number it's 250 bucks or what i think it was 150 bucks a month yep. per unit will create you financial freedom it's the same metric you've just applied it for the real business not necessarily through owning the actual physical real estate Correct. i think that's really really key i also think that you you i think you hit the nail on the head there being of a younger generation understanding the technology piece of it and making sure your tenants are on the technology from day dot helps you manage a more effective and efficient team yep. and property management you know, business because you're not having to have people pick up the phones and dial in for cash and all that sort of stuff. Yep. Um, and I think that I think the last one was, um, where, where, where do I write this here? Oh, yeah, yeah, how to bring value to, to a property management company through discipline equals happiness. Uh, I think that was one of the biggest things that yep. I took out of it. If, you, if you're disciplined about your property management company or any company and you're disciplined in, in your daily life, you will create happiness through that. Discipline. And I think it, so you I can't really see it on my board, but it's like right there. It says discipline. Yeah, I can <laughs> see it. Yeah, I can see it. I can see awesome. it. Awesome. Did, did it leave anything out? No, no. I think you covered all the, all the great topics that I touched on and uh, really appreciative of the opportunity to come on your show. 
Mate, my pleasure. Well, I want to, uh, you know, thank you so much again for taking some time out of your day. Enjoy the rest of your week and we will catch up very, very soon. Sounds good. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Jimmy. Um, if you do want to catch any of his stuff, please head over to lionpropertymanagement.com. That's L-Y-O-N, uh, propertymanagement.com. And you can also find him on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, he's a really inspirational guy in terms of doing some stuff, rolling up the sleeves and getting making it happen in a space that's not that sexy, but we all, as investors, want to know how to manage and have a better property manager. So, so definitely pick his brain on anything in the future. I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on the show. And we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and remember, go give life a crack. Mm-hmm.